The book of Jonah is almost at the very end of the Old Testament. It's the seventh to last book in the Old Testament. And if you cannot find it, it is hard to find sometimes. There is no shame in flipping to the front and using the glossary or, or the index. So rock the glossary if you need to. Uh, if you weren't here last weekend, maybe this is your first morning joining us. Like I just said, we're in the middle of a four-week series on this well-known story about a prophet that is a, a messenger of God, someone who speaks a word of the Lord to a group of people, the prophet Jonah, who gets swallowed by a giant fish and he lives to tell about it. That's the, that's the story that we are in the midst of. Now, could I be so bold as to ask, is there anyone here who has literally never heard this story before? Literally never heard this story before. Okay, so either all of us have heard this story or those who haven't are introverts who would rather be swallowed by an actual fish than raise their hand. I fall into that category, believe it or not. So the story, this story of Jonah is one of the most widely known stories in all of the Bible. But as we looked at last week, it does not necessarily mean that it's well understood. The book of Jonah runs so much deeper than just a a simple fable or a one moral lesson. It is a masterfully written, multi-layered work of didactic history. That's a big word, but what, what we believe here at Substance is that this is history, meaning that it is true, that it really happened, and we believe that for several reasons. One, the first reason is that in verse one, the, it begins like a work of history. Chapter one, verse one. The author of the story, which was possibly Jonah, we don't know for sure, he, he, he's, he names the name of an actual person, an actual prophet, Jonah the son of Amittai, who ministered in Israel during the reign of an actual king, King Jeroboam II. The story also, in chapter 1, lists three actual cities in the Near and Middle East, Nineveh, Joppa, and Tarshish. My point is that It's highly unlikely that the author of this story would have rooted an untrue story in such a specific time and setting. The second reason we believe that this is a work of history is because Jesus treated the story of Jonah as a real happenstance. In Matthew chapter 12, you can read it for yourself. Jesus acted as if the story of Jonah really happened, and that should be quite persuasive for us. It should be pretty telling that the Son of God referred to this as as an event that actually happened. Lastly, we looked at the biology last last week, just a little bit of it, and how it it, it is improbable, but it is still very possible for a person to be swallowed by a giant fish and live to tell about it. I, I talked last week just briefly about the team of modern biologists who are absolutely convinced that Jonah could have survived in the belly of a great white shark. The text never mentions whale, it says a giant fish, and there's a compartment of the, of the great white shark belly that actually has oxygen in it, and it, there's no digestive juices. It's like a holding cell. So biologically, we, we, we see this as being a highly improbable but very possible story, very true story, not to mention, here's the last one. If, if we serve a God who, who claims to have created the world by the word of his power, to raise his son from the dead, a son who turned water into wine and who walked on water, surviving in a fish is the least of our concerns. 
we can believe this God that he was able to sustain a man for three days in the belly of, if you will, a great white shark. And so all that to say, here at Substance, we believe that what we are about to read this morning is historical, that, that, that it's a, a true story, but it's also didactic, meaning this, that it teaches us a great many things. Last week, we examined how God caused the storm that caused the sailors to throw Jonah overboard, and that God then appointed a giant fish to swallow Jonah. And one, of the, one of the things that we learned last week that makes this a didactic piece of, of work that we're learning from is that when God's people run from him in disobedience, what we learned last week is that God will use whatever is necessary, even a giant fish, to bring us back to stop us in our tracks. We learned that God was sovereignly behind Jonah's affliction. Jonah himself recognizes this in verse 3 of our text this morning. We haven't even read it, but chapter 2, verse 3, it was though, the sail, though it was the sailors who physically threw Jonah into the sea in chapter 1, Jonah cries out in our passage today in verse 3 that it was God who cast him into the deep. God is sovereignly commissioning Jonah's affliction not to punish Jonah, to rescue Jonah. Because just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Jonah thought he knew better than God. God told him to go to Nineveh, to Assyria, to tell those people to repent from their sin. But it had been prophesied by the prophet Hosea, who was a contemporary of Jonah, that Assyria, that the Ninevites would actually be the ones to come and to overthrow Jonah's people, the northern kingdom of Israel, and usher them into exile. And so Jonah reasoned to himself when he got this commission from God, God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, God, I I think you're missing one big detail. Those are the people that are going to come and usher us into exile. I'm not going. And so just like Adam and Eve who reasoned to themselves, no, it's actually for our joy that we eat the fruit from the forbidden tree. They disobeyed God following their own logic. Jonah does the exact same thing. But instead of allowing Jonah to run and to sail away in his rebellion, God mercifully, as we saw last week, brought temporal affliction upon Jonah in order to save him from eternal destruction. And we ended last week with verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that brings us all the way up to our passage this morning. So God, remind us that what we're about to read is your inspired word. Fill us with and attentive reverence as you speak to us now. Let's read chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet 
I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Hallelujah. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Wow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, God in heaven, by your Holy Spirit, grant us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive what you are speaking to us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we greatly value here at Substance Church is expositional preaching or expository preaching. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, it simply means that we preach from the Bible. Occasionally, we will do a topical or thematical sermon about loss or generosity or courage, but on the whole, we preach through books of the Bible, line by line, paragraph by paragraph, because we believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God, and every word of it is profitable to us for knowing Him and living lives that honor Him. And so for this reason, expositional uh, sermons, expository sermons are committed to going where the Bible goes. We're committed to saying what the Bible says from this pulpit. The, the main point of our passage must be the main point of the sermon. Do, do we see that? And so for this reason... When we come to a chapter of scripture such as Jonah chapter 2 that is one big, long, beautiful prayer, prayer, guess what today's sermon is going to be about? Prayer. Prayer. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus was always praying. He was always urging his disciples, his close followers to pray. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never taught Peter, James, John, the whole gang. He never taught them how to preach a sermon or how to lead an inductive Bible study. He never taught them how to manage a church budget, but he taught them to pray. And he urged them to pray. And he was grieved. Anyone in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he assigns them to pray and to keep watch and they're doing neither? He was grieved when his disciples wouldn't pray. I think it's safe to say that above and beyond anything else, God wants us to pray to him because prayer is the pinnacle demonstration of faith. See, we can read Scripture, we can memorize Scripture and not actually trust Christ for our salvation. More so than, 
than reading and memorizing scripture, more so than door-to-door evangelism, yours and my prayer life is what truly indicates the strength, maturity, and vibrancy of our faith. Now, we can't isolate it. We can't just be prayer seclusionists. That's all we ever do. That would be antithetical to what the scriptures say. But I love what 17th century theologian John Owen says about prayer. I've quoted this before. He says this, What a man is on his knees in secret before God, that he is and no more. What a woman is on her knees in secret before God, that she is and no more. The title of my sermon uh, I stole from the first three words of chapter 2, Then Jonah Prayed. And for the remainder of our time, we're going to examine three characteristics of Jonah's prayer that we've just read, three characteristics that teach us something about prayer in general, three characteristics of Jonah's prayer that ought to be characteristics of our own prayer life, okay? So my three points, if you're a note taker, number one, the desperation of prayer Number two, the determination of prayer. And number three, the deliverance of prayer. Number one, the desperation. And what I mean by that is the urgency, the the criticality of prayer. So it's hard to believe, but next month marks the 17th anniversary of 9-11. Isn't that hard to believe? And I bet most of us can picture exactly where we were when we first set our eyes on that image of the Twin Towers. And I remember one of the things that struck me most, excuse me, as I watched and as I listened to the live footage at Ground Zero, it struck me the number of people you could hear and see on television crying out to God in sheer desperation. Every time they showed a live feed, you could hear it in the background. Oh, Lord, you could hear it. Oh, God, oh, Jesus, help us. You could see it on the live feed. There were people huddled together in the streets and around buildings. They were holding hands. They were crying out to the Lord because prayer is an act of desperation. Whether in Manhattan on 9-11 or whether on the operating table of the James Cancer Center, prayer is where we go when we have nowhere else to go. In our story, we don't know how long Jonah floundered on the surface of the water before being swallowed by the great fish. He reflects in verse 3 that from the deep, From the heart of the sea, the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, your your, your breakers, they passed over me and crashed over me. Jonah is stretching the Hebrew language to the absolute brink when he's describing he was no match for the angry open ocean. The waters closed in over me, he says, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, around my head, at the roots of the mountains. Verse 6. The seaweed that's entangled him is literally pulling him 
to the bottom seafloor, deeper and deeper. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, verse 6. The Hebrew word sheol, which Jonah mentions by name in verse 2, refers to the realm of the dead or the pit, as Jonah describes it in verse 6. And like a watery realm of the dead... Its prison bars were closing in around Jonah. He is as good as dead. He is dying. And when my life was fainting away, he reflects in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, then I remembered the Lord. What we see is that prayer is an act of of desperation. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. <clears throat> when we've reached our limit, when we've exhausted all of our resources, when we have no other options, prayer is where we go when we have nowhere else to go. And so if you are here this morning and you're out of options, let's just say theoretically, and you've exhausted all your own resources. Man, you are in the right place. If you're here this morning and you're in desperate need for help, you are in the right place. Psalm 34:15 describes our God that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, those who trust in him. His ears are open to their cries for help. Even in this very moment, the eternal and holy creator, God, he sees you. He knows your deepest need and through your desperation, not in spite of it, through your desperation, he is calling you, he is drawing you to himself. This is going to sound backwards, but if you're here this morning and you're in a desperate situation... Praise the Lord because salvation and restoration and healing belongs to those who know they need him. But that is just it, right? That's the kicker. This is, this is the very reason why I'm convinced that so many of us 21st century American Christians not only struggle in our faith, but we struggle to pray because we are hardly ever desperate. This is the information age. We're in the digital age, the age of almost limitless resources when, 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 when nearly... Every need or want that we might have can be addressed with the swipe of a credit card. We almost always have another move. We almost always, as 21st century Americans, we almost always have somewhere else we can go. Most of us, I'm afraid, are not prayerful because we're not desperate. One of the things Jonah 2 is showing us is that prayer is, in fact, an act of desperation. Now, I think that many of us know that we ought to pray. I think many of us want to pray, but subconsciously, again, in our time and culture, too many of us don't feel the need to pray, do we? 
We're too busy like Jonah did in chapter 1, taking matters into our own hands and sleeping at the bottom of the boat, resting in our own deceived self-assurance. And we fail to recognize this all-important truth in this moment, that church, theologically speaking, we are at our most desperate when we feel the least desperation for God. And so, ironically, as your pastor, I am seriously desperate because I rarely feel that desperation for God. Maybe the best thing that some of us could do this morning is to pray even right now that God would make us desperate. I made that mistake about three years ago in my prayer journal, asking the Lord to back me up into a corner and stretch my faith, and then all of a sudden we were moving like five times a year, and we finally came to a land we did not know called Worcester, Ohio, and we're so grateful for it. Number two, the determination of prayer, and by that I mean the confidence the assurance, the certainty of prayer. Verse 2, Jonah reflects, I called out to the Lord, it was out of my distress, I was desperate, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, out of the belly of the realm of the dead, you heard my voice even from there. I am driven away from your sight, verse 4. He was dying, but look at this assurance that creeps in. And yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. I remembered the Lord, verse 7, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now here, Jonah starts to demonstrate some pretty good theology. Because see, though he spent the first half of chapter 1 running from the Lord deep down, don't we all know that that's impossible? We're not going to outrun God. And as he sank deeper and deeper and deeper into the ocean's void, right theology restored his thinking, and he knew all he had to do was to lift his voice, to cry out, and God would hear him. This was not Jonah's first prayer rodeo. He had heard, he had seen the faithfulness of God to answer prayer before. Brothers and sisters, do we have this confidence that no matter who you are or where you are, maybe in the belly of a fish at the heart of the sea, no matter what your story is, do you have the confidence that when you call out to the Lord in prayer, he will hear you, he will answer you. Do you have this confidence? Because often I don't think that I do. And that's reflective in my prayer life or oftentimes lack thereof. Because if we had this confidence, would we not pray more? Would it not become the utmost of priorities instead of 20 extra minutes of sleep in the morning? Would it not be something that we set our timers on our phones to go off every hour and we pause and we pray for 60 seconds straight, just knowing that the Lord hears us and petitioning him? 
According to Hebrews 11:6, those who do draw near to God in prayer are those who not only believe that he hears, they believe he rewards those who seek him. Do we believe that every time we cry out, no matter where we are, that we walk away with something we didn't have? Peace, joy, strength, guidance, direction, sustenance. He rewards those who seek him. The the psalmist who wrote our our call to worship this morning was getting at the heart of this. Psalm 116, 1 through 2, he says, I love the Lord. I love him because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. He inclined his ear to me. And therefore, that was the proof of the pudding for the psalmist. He now will call upon him as long as he lives. George Mueller was a 19th century man of God, a man of prayer who lived in Bristol, England. He, by faith, started orphanages in a very, very rough part of town in a very rough time. He was a regular prayer journaler, and over the course of his tenure overseeing orphanages, he was a serious man of prayer. He prayer journaled all the time. He had over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayer. 50,000. One day he woke up, the head maid of the school, the orphanage came to him and said, George, we are out of food. We're, we're out of food. And George went to the Lord in prayer. He went back to his, this, this lady and he said, dress all of the, the orphans, all of the students, have them sit down, set the tables. I believe. I've seen the Lord work in times like this before. Lo and behold, moments later, a knock at the door. It was a baker who was awakened by the Lord in the middle of the night and told to start baking bread for the orphans. And he had it ready, hot and ready in a truck to be delivered. Guess what else? Another moment at the door was another knock. It was the milkman. His truck had broken down right in front of the orphanage. And he said, do you have need for all of this milk? It's about to spoil. And it blessed every single child in that orphanage. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that God hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Do you ever wonder, well, that... You know, John mentioned in that passage that we'll only have that confidence if we ask according to the Lord's will. You ever wonder what that, I think it's easy as this. Lord, all of these orphans need food. Your will be done. I think it is that simple. Is this not what Jesus modeled for us in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, not my will. Nevertheless, your will be done. If there's a different way, that this cup can be passed, that's, that's, that's fine. But if I've got to go to the cross as we predetermined from before the ages of the foundation, if I've got to go to the cross to atone for these people, then so be it, your will be done. I love what Tim Keller 
writes in this book right here, which we have on the shelf in our bookstore. The book is called Prayer. It's kind of hard to miss. I would encourage you to pick this up. What he writes in this book, I believe, is 100% theologically accurate that God, when we pray, your will be done, Lord. God will only ever give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. Meaning whatever comes to pass in the situations of our life, God is going to give us what we would have asked for if we could just have his vantage point. See, Jonah would have invited being swallowed by the belly of a fish. He would have said, I want that if he could see the heart that it would form in him on the back end. Does that make sense? No wonder we can have such confidence as the author of Hebrews encourages us to just simply enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, to draw near to God in full assurance, and then to prayerfully hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because as we pray, God is faithful to answer. And I don't know about you, but I, I do not take nearly enough advantage of the throne of grace that is open to me 24-7. We have access to the ear of the one who holds all powers in his hand. Jonah knew this, which is why as he sunk to the ocean floor, as he was swallowed by the giant fish, he cried out, knowing that the Lord would hear him. In closing, point number three, the deliverance of prayer. Now, I think it's natural when we think of the delivering prayer of Jonah. I think it's, I think it's natural that we jump to verse 10. We see this illustrated. Well, well, here's the deliverance. The Lord actually, he speaks to the fish. He speaks. The word of his power speaks to the fish. And the fish vomits Jonah out upon the dry land. That's not really a pretty picture, but surely Jonah welcomed this this form of deliverance surely right but the deliverance that i am talking about the deliverance of prayer that's even greater than jonah being expelled from the fish is what jonah acknowledges in verses eight and nine look at the clarity that comes to mind lord those who pay regard to vain idols as he had done trusting in his own self those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But look at this reversal. Look at what the affliction of the fish has brought about in Jonah. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Look at the clarity of thought. What I have vowed, my obedience to you as a prophet, as a messenger of God, I will pay because you know what? At the end of the day, you've now rescued me in this fish. You want to rescue the people of Nineveh. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You'll have mercy on whomever you have mercy, O oh God. It was in the midst of desperate, determined prayer that Jonah was delivered from his greatest danger, and it wasn't the fish. His greatest danger was his own sinful heart who had forsaken his hope in the steadfast love of God. He was trusting in his own self, running from Joppa to Tarshish. 
It's kind of like the Cambodian girl whom I shared about last week. God's greatest act of delivering her, his greatest act of delivering this girl was not delivering her from the world of human trafficking. That was huge. Don't get me wrong. That was huge. His greatest act of delivering her was giving her dead heart new life in Jesus. He used the hells of human trafficking to bring her to the glory and the truth and the beauty of Jesus. As we see in verses 8 and 9, prayer delivers us from the idolatry of ourselves, of self-reliance, self-assurance. It restores us to right thinking. It repostures us for right being. It recommissions us for right living. That's what prayer does. And so every one of us here, do we not? We desperately need to pray. Whether we recognize it or not, apart from Christ, apart from the salvation that is perfect life, death, and burial, and resurrection affords us, apart from that, church, we are all in the belly of a giant fish and we don't even know it. Our greatest need is not rescue from the world of trafficking. Our greatest need is not healing from this particular sickness. Our greatest need is not, at the end of the day, the provision of bread and butter. Our greatest need is that God the Holy Spirit would show our hearts that we, without Christ, are dead in our sin. And Jesus has lovingly and mercifully come to earth to live the perfect life we have not, to die on a cross in our place to pay the penalty for sin, the debt that we owed the Father for our cosmic rebellion, He paid it, and then guess what? Instead of three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, the better prophet, Jesus, went three days and three nights into the heart of the earth, into the tomb. He's the better prophet than Jonah. Instead of Nineveh, Jesus was commissioned to the world, and he came, and he obeyed, and he rose to life. He came out of the belly of the tomb. He rose to life by his own power, and now he calls us Brothers and sisters, let's put our trust in Christ. Let's believe his good news that today is a day of deliverance for those who trust him. And so let us be a body that calls out in desperation with great determination as we look to the deliverance of our hearts that we would be saved and taste and see that the Lord is good. Salvation is of the Lord indeed. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, I'm going to invite Ed Rocha, who's going to deliver our communion introduction. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back forward as well. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the story of this prophet that I can, whom I can relate so much with. I ask you, God, for forgiveness as I run to my own version of Tarshish every day uh, with self-reliance justifying my own actions and disobeying you Lord forgive me whatever it takes Lord I pray even if a giant fish is what it's taking 
Lord, that you would rescue me and my brothers and sisters. Stop us dead in our tracks of rebellion, Lord. Show us, show our hearts our need for you. Lord, we confess our sin. We cry out in repentance, forgive us. Lord, let us be a church that prays. Let us believe that you hear and that you are faithful to answer. Lord, your will be done in Worcester as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.